And for the rest of us, if you have a Bible, please open up to Isaiah 49. If you're using the Bible in the seat in front of you, you can uh, find Isaiah 49 on page 520. We'll be looking at um, verses 14 to 21 of Isaiah 49. Um, As I thought about the themes that we have covered in Sunday sermons over the past while, I realized that we haven't talked much about Christian character, and that's why as as Dave mentioned, I thought it would be good to take a break from Luke this summer and, and to think about character, um, to think about who we are, the, the quality of our hearts, what comes out when we're squeezed, when we're under pressure, um, how we get along with each other as we live our lives. And um, focusing on the fruit of the Spirit is a great way to, um, to, to look at character. So each week this summer, we're going to be taking one of the qualities that we read earlier listed in uh, Galatians 5, not necessarily doing them in order, but covering a number of them. And when we look at each one, um, the way that we'll do it is first we'll look at how Jesus or, or God exhibited that quality. Because they're our example, right? We're made in God's image, and so it's their character that we're learning. It's their heart that we're learning to reflect and to emulate as we look at the way that, that God uh, is and, and relates um, to human beings. So today we begin with faithfulness um, in Isaiah 49, where we see God's faithfulness. But I don't want to start with Isaiah. We'll get there a little later. Because the best way to see God's faithfulness is to step back and to remember the big story of God's working with humanity all through history. And so we could begin the story with Adam and Eve and see how after God had, had made them and given them a wonderful garden to live in, God had warned them um, about not eating a certain fruit and that the penalty of eating that forbidden fruit was death itself. But they ate anyway. They rebelled against God. But God didn't destroy them as God had threatened to do. Instead, God stuck with, stuck with them and allowed them to go on living. Or we could start with Noah and remember how when the world was going downhill and became increasingly and exceedingly wicked, God nevertheless stuck with his creation and he preserved it through Noah's ark instead of destroying it completely. But instead, let's begin with Abraham and Sarah. Because when humanity again became exceedingly evil and arrogant and built a city and a tower to rival God, God didn't destroy humankind, but called a couple named Abraham and Sarah to to trust God, to live in a committed covenant relationship with God. Where they would follow God in faith and God would bless them and through them bless all the nations who were going astray. How would God do this? God promised that he would make this childless, infertile couple into a great fruitful nation and that he would give them a land to dwell in. But Abraham and Sarah didn't always do so well at keeping their end of of the bargain, which was to trust God. They got impatient with God. They tried their their own way to raise up a, a family and they made a mess in the process. But but God stuck with them anyway. Why? Why does God keep sticking with his people? Then there was Abraham and Sarah's grandson, Jacob. Jacob was a liar and a cheat. 
Well, at one time, Jacob deceived his father in order to steal his brother's blessing. Jacob wasn't much of a father or a husband either. He played favorites with his wives and with his sons. And so he wound up raising the ultimate dysfunctional family, you know, long before Bart Simpson. Um, Yet God stuck with Jacob and his family, even though Jacob's sons were worse than their father. They sold their younger brother into slavery, almost killed him. Reuben slept with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi massacred a neighboring tribe out of vengeance. Judah lied uh, lied to his daughter-in-law and and failed to fulfill his responsibility to provide for her. He also slept with a prostitute. And these were the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people. And God used them anyway. Why? Why does God keep sticking with his people? Then fast forward several hundred years. God had faithfully kept his promise. He'd made his people into a great nation. For a time they were slaves in Egypt. But God was was ready in the time of Moses to, to use Moses to keep his promise. To bring his people out of Egypt to a land of their own. The land that he had promised to Abraham. But no sooner does God get his people out of captivity that they start grumbling against God. They grumble in the desert because they're thirsty, because they're hungry. Then when God provides for them, they grumble because they're sick of eating bread. They want meat. Where's the beef? When Moses goes up a mountain to draw close to God and to learn God's will for the people, the people get tired of waiting. And so they make a golden statue of a calf and they start worshiping that instead of the true God who just brought them out of Egypt. And yet again and again, God forgives his people until finally God gets them to the promised land. And the people then refuse to go in because it seems too dangerous. And so they rebel against Moses and God, and they decide to head back to Egypt. And yet again, God forgives them. Why does God keep sticking with his people? Well, finally, 40 years later, Joshua succeeds Moses as leader, and he does take the people into the promised land. But before long, the other people living in the land are leading God's people astray. And so in the time of the judges, we see a, a certain pattern being repeated again and again. First, the people turn from God to follow other gods and to do whatever is right in their own eyes. Second, God lets the people be harassed and oppressed by their enemies. Third, God's people cry out to God for help. Fourth, God relents and raises up a judge to lead the people back to God and and, and to victory against their oppressors. Fifth, things get good for a little while, and then the people turn away from God, and the cycle repeats. Again and again, the people turn away from God, and again and again during the time of the judges, God forgives them and takes them back. Why? Why does God keep sticking with his people? Then the people reject God as their king, and they insist on having a human king like the other nations have. And God warns them that this king will will oppress them and will lead them away from God. But, But they insist stubbornly, and so God gives them a king. First, they have Saul, who's who's a coward and is allergic to trusting God. Then they have David who, who starts off well and, and God makes a new promise, a new covenant with David that, that David will always have a descendant to sit on the throne of God's people. But David winds up committing adultery with a married woman and then murdering her husband. 
Then they have Solomon, who, who starts off well, but he finishes very poorly, turning his heart from God. And so finally, God has had enough, and he, he rips most of the kingdom away from Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and, and God gives it to a guy named Jeroboam and says, Jeroboam, will you follow me and be faithful? But, but Jeroboam promptly brings the golden calf back and leads Israel into rebellion against God again. And then it's all downhill for Israel. There are bad kings. There's bloodshed. There are coup d'etats and massacres, idolatry, oppression of the poor. Ahab and Jezebel are, are the poster children for all of this. But lots of the other kings and queens didn't do much better. And yet God sticks with his people. Why? God gives them some of the greatest prophets to, to plead with them to turn back to God. Elijah and Elisha and Amos and Hosea, yet the people refuse to turn back to God. Eventually, God's patience runs out and he allows the empire of Egypt to come and to destroy Israel. But still, God refuses to give up on his people altogether. He, he still holds on to one little tribe, Judah, back when God had, had torn most of the kingdom away uh, and given it to Jeroboam. Still, God had let Solomon's son, Rehoboam, keep this one tribe. And, and, and God had done this in faithfulness to his covenant to David. Well, Judah did a little better than the Israelites at, at sticking with God, but eventually they went downhill too. By, by the time it was done, they were offering their children in the fire to the god Molech. They were killing the prophets God sent to them. And finally, after God had tried and tried and his people had just refused and refused to turn back to God, God let the empire of Babylon come and take his people into captivity. But even as God was doing this, he, he's promising through, through prophets like Jeremiah that this punishment is only for a season and that after that, God would, would relent and would bring his people back to the land again. Why? Why does God keep sticking with his people? In exile, the people still don't have a change of heart. They just complain that the Lord isn't fair. God doesn't care. That God is useless and powerless. And so in the second half of the book of Isaiah, there's, there's a big argument between God and his people in exile. And that's where our passage for today fits in. Judah is arguing against God in exile, saying in verse 14, the Lord has forsaken us. The Lord has forgotten us. And yet God replies, nothing could be further from the truth. Stop and remember your story. I've forgiven you again and again. I've stuck with you through thick and thin from Adam to Noah to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and his 12 sons through the days of Moses and Joshua and all the judges and Saul and David and Solomon and then all the other kings. I have stuck with you, my people. Why? Why has God stuck with them? Finally, in verse 15, we have the answer. Isaiah 49. God says to his people, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Well, even if she could, I will not forget you. Why does God stick with his people? Because his people are on his heart. Like a baby is on the heart of the mother who nurses it. 
that's what faithfulness is. Faithfulness is, is sticking with people through, through thick and thin. It's, it's keeping your promises no matter what. And not only because it's your duty to do so, and so you're going to soldier through. That's a start. But God's faithfulness goes beyond that. God's faithfulness is like a mother's heart for the child she lovingly nurses. God's faithfulness is about mercy and compassion, nurture and affection. The Hebrew word for faithfulness is chesed. It's also translated kindness, compassion, or or more often loving kindness. That's how God feels about his people. And that's why he sticks with his people no matter what. And in the rest of our passage today, we see how because of God's faithful love, God was not going to and did not leave his people in exile. God goes on in verses 16 to 18, talking now to metaphorically speaking to the city of Jerusalem as if it's a, a grieving mother of all these children who are in exile. See, God says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your your walls are ever before me. Your children hasten back. Those who laid you waste depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your children gather and come to you. And God did bring the exiled children back, didn't he? Though they had not learned their lesson, though they had not really had a change of heart, God, like a tender-hearted mother, could not bear to look at the suffering of his children, so he rescued them. We read this part of the story in Ezra and Nehemiah, and there we learn that no sooner are the people back in the land than they turn from God and go back to their sinful ways. And at that point, it's lights out, end of Act 1, end of the Old Testament, and we wait in the dark in suspense. Is this the end? Has God's faithfulness finally given out? And of course, as the curtain rises again, the lights come on for Act 2, the New Testament, And we realize, no, nothing could be further from the truth. God's faithfulness towards his people has not wavered at all. In fact, God is about to express his faithfulness now more strongly than ever before. So now God himself comes to his people in the person of Jesus. Offering complete forgiveness, offering grace, seeking to renew God's relationship with his people, ready to fulfill all God's promises to Abraham and to David in abundance. Jesus is also going even more to spread God's love now, not only to his historic people, but lavishly, generously to anyone else in the whole world, any child of Adam and Eve who will come and receive his love. And, and so the New Testament message, I think, is summed up well by an old song. Tie the yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. I'm coming home. I've done my time. Now I've got to know what is and isn't mine. If you received my letter telling you I'd be, soon be free, then you'll know just what to do if you still want me. Tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. It's been three long years. Do you still want me? If I don't see that ribbon around the old oak tree, I'll stay on the bus, forget about us, put the blame on me if I don't see a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. Bus driver, please look for me because I couldn't bear to see what I might see. I'm really still in prison and my love, she holds the key. 
a simple yellow ribbons, what I need to be set free. Now the whole darn bus is cheering, and I can't believe I see a hundred yellow ribbons round the old oak tree. That's what Jesus does for us. That's what the gospel is about. God tying a hundred yellow ribbons round the old oak tree. No matter what we've done, no matter how many times we've strayed or betrayed God or broken his heart, God still looks at us with abundant mercy and compassion like a mother looks at the baby she nurses. That's God's heart. That's faithfulness. And that's the fruit of the Spirit in our hearts. If we are a follower of Jesus, then God puts his own spirit in us to to begin working his heart, his character in us so that we become faithful people too. That's what God has saved us for and brought us into his family as his children for so that we can look like him, so that we can be like him and come to have his character like parent, like child. So that we will be faithful back toward God, finally. And so that we will be faithful to the people God has put in our lives and called us to love. So question, who are the people you need to be faithful to? Take a minute right now and just picture their faces. Who are the people that you need to be faithful to. To give you a little help, let me help us think about three applications. Our friends, our family, and our sexuality. First, our friends. Do you have friends you're faithful to? There's a beautiful story of friendship in the Old Testament between David and and Jonathan. These were were both young men. They both loved God. They were both fierce and courageous warriors. And yet, like a great Shakespearean tragedy, the broader political currents of their day and, and, and family tensions threatened to tear their friendship apart. And so what did these two friends do? They made a covenant together. They committed to their friendship. They made promises to each other. Do you remember when commitment and faithfulness was a part of friendship? Um, boys, you know, used to become blood brothers. They'd, they'd swear on ending friendship. They'd cut their fingers with their pocket knives and, like, stick their blood together. These days, commitment um, isn't very common in friendship. We've made other people as disposable as paper plates or cheap electronics. We try out a friend if if it doesn't work out or it gets boring or annoying or uh, they won't fit into our schedule anymore, we, we toss them in the trash and we find someone else. How, how about you? Are there friends in your life you are really committed to? Is there anyone with whom you are practicing faithfulness? I'll tell you a couple ways that I've practiced being faithful. One way is, is to make promises and commitments to friends and, and then to keep them even when it hurts. Um, For example, I, like I'm sure you, have faced situations where I agreed to to do something with with a friend, maybe go shopping or uh, 
uh, do, help them do some yard work or whatever. And, and then I get a better offer, right? <laughs> Another friend I liked more had an extra ticket to the big game and invited me along, right? <laughs> and, and, and so what do I do? I, I could ditch friend A and go to the game with friend B and make up a lie to cover it up. Um, or, or I could stick with friend A, but, but just, you know, suffer through the afternoon all the while resolving. I'm never going to make a commitment again. You know, from now on, I'm not going to let anyone pin me down. I won't give an answer to an invitation until the very last minute to see if I feel like going or if I get a better offer in the meantime. Or I can practice being faithful and, and keep making commitments and keep keeping them because friendship is about being there for people and letting them know that they can count on you. There are a lot of other creative ways that we can practice uh, faithfulness by making commitments. We could uh, commit with a friend to praying together once a week. We could commit to getting together once a month for a meal. We could commit to being um, godparents to their children or something big and significant like that. A second way that I've practiced faithfulness is, um, involves making time for people. Uh, Pick a few people you, you feel are really important to you and, and make time in your busy life for them. Take time from work. Take time from errands and to-do lists. Turn off the screen. Stop and give your friends the gift of time. Now, I realize this takes two and, and that there are only, there's only so much you can do and then the other person has to reciprocate. <laughs> Um, and if you put yourself out there and they don't return it, you're taking the risk of being hurt. I've experienced this. I've had friends whose, whose friendship meant a good deal to me who suddenly dropped me like a hot potato. And, and boy, did it hurt. Faithful people do get hurt when other people aren't faithful back. Just look at God's experience. That's what love is. That's what faithfulness is about. It does involve risk that you'll get hurt. Okay, second, let's move on from friends to family. What I've said about friends, of course, applies to family too. Making promises and commitments and keeping them. Making time for each other. These expressions of faithfulness are even more important with family because with family, the bonds of commitment are, are supposed to be the strongest. Let, let me just tell you one story about faithfulness and family. Writer and uh, preacher Brian Chappell gives this example of, of how we imitate God when we manage to be faithful to our family. He writes, friends of ours grew up in church. They have a fine house, sweet kids, and good jobs. But the wife has an emotional mental problem. She periodically steals from her own family and gambles the money away. She's been to counselors, doctors, and pastors, but nothing helps permanently. Imagine your own wife stealing from you, pawning objects of value, withdrawing money from bank accounts intentionally but not infallibly denied her, and then lying about it for months. Every time she's stolen from her husband and ruined his future, he's forgiven her and taken her back. Even when she gave up on her own life and tried to kill herself, he refused to give up on her. I asked this husband once why he didn't end this marriage, in spite of pressure from many friends and family to do so. His words were courageous and simple. She's a good mother most of the time, and my children need her. 
But more than that, they need to know the love of their God. How can they know of a Father in heaven who forgives them if their own father won't forgive their own mother? We have a heavenly Father who faithfully forgives us again and again and again. And he is teaching us to do the same. Okay, finally, third, let's apply this to the area of sexuality. What does faithfulness have to do with sex? Well, you know, love, romantic love especially, has two essential components. One is intimacy, and one is faithfulness. You can't have love without both. Faithfulness without intimacy is, is cold, it's, it's mechanical, it's boring. And intimacy without faithfulness is, is insecure and, and vulnerable. It's a broken heart waiting to happen. That's why for over 2,000 years now, followers of Jesus have affirmed what both Old and New Testaments teach about sex. And that is that the intimacy of sex is to be enjoyed only within a relationship of utter faithfulness. Marriage. Why? Because, because sex is the ultimate act of intimacy and marriage is the ultimate act of faithfulness. And so when two people aren't married and they have sex, it, it, it isn't that they are having too much pleasure or, or that they have too little self-control or that sex is somehow dirty. No, not at all. For God, sex is beautiful and, and wonderful. It's to be celebrated. Anyone who thinks God is squeamish about sex needs to read the Song of Solomon, right? God has made us sexual beings. He's given us powerful desires to, to draw close to another person. The problem with, with sex outside of marriage is that it's a failure to be faithful. It's to say, I, I'm so attracted to you that, that I'm willing to bear to you and, and to enjoy with you the most vulnerable, intimate, tender experience that, that two people can share. I want to be wed together with you in all the mysterious ways that, that sex mingles bodies and, and hearts and, and souls. I want to engage with you in this powerful act of love, which, which is so potent, it very naturally creates new life. I'll share all of this with you, but I'm not going to commit to you. I will not be faithful. And so sex outside of marriage isn't so much a pleasure problem or a passion problem as it is, is a faithfulness problem. And having two unmarried adults who are deeply in love but are, uh, or, and who are, are both willingly consenting to, to sex doesn't make it any better because then it's just a conspiracy by both of them to not be faithful to each other. But God is about faithfulness. And God says, if you like someone enough that you want to be that vulnerable and intimate and close, then, then commit to be faithful to that person. So get married. And if you can't, then, then find someone else with whom you can. In fact, you might know that in the Old Testament law, if two people who weren't married had sex, do you know what God's solution was? They should get married. Because otherwise, we're just engaging in another case of disposable relationships. 
We're saying, I'm going to use you now to, to feel good tonight. And, and maybe I love you and maybe I don't, but, but I'm not committing. And so if this doesn't work out, I'm going to kick you to the curb and find someone else. And God says, no, people are not trash. You are not trash to be thrown aside that way. Sex is designed to draw two people together in intimacy. Yes, that's a beautiful thing. So beautiful. It should be celebrated and enjoyed together forever. Because love is about faithfulness as well as intimacy. God says, I am faithful to those I love. And I want you to learn to be faithful too. Well, the good news as we close is that God is so faithful that God remains faithful even when we have been unfaithful. When we fail, God remains faithful to, to stick with us, to forgive us and to take us back and to love us again. How could it be otherwise? God loves us like a mother loves the child she nurses. And God wants to teach us to love with that heart of faithfulness, too. Let's pray. God, we look in our own hearts and we admit that we do not have the kind of faithfulness you have. But we recognize that faithfulness is the fruit of your spirit. It's you coming to be present within us and giving us your heart, making us like you, causing us to resemble and imitate you, our parent, like parent, like child. And so I pray that you would work a greater measure of your faithfulness in our hearts. Amen.